Welcome to episode four of the five-part Leo Westerholm series. In episode three, we heard all about Leo's early hours as a POW. And in this episode, we hear about his transport across France and into Germany by train to his first POW camp and the horrible conditions and experiences that he had to endure. Next, he's going to be talking about when they get put on trains and their horrible odyssey across France and eventually into Germany. I would say when I got out of Chartres, I had gone from 185, now I was down to about 130. Mm -hmm. They put us on a train and they gave the, the one, 10 men to a package. We had to divide it up best we could. And then they gave us each a bottle that had, had wine in it, but they filled it with water. Mm. And that was the water we had, and we got on the train, cattle car. And it took us six days to go from Chartres, France, past Paris, all the way into Germany to Lindbergh, where they had a big um, processing camp for prisoners. About six days. Now, what we had when we ate that food, we all got diarrhea. Mm -hmm. We got on that train and we were never allowed off. Diarrhea or no diarrhea. And we had, in the middle of the floor, that thing, we had a slit about that long, just enough to where you could get over the top of it and squirt it on out. Oh. Okay? Now, if you wanted to wipe your butt, you had to do it with your fingers and wipe it off on your clothes. Jeez, no man. But anyway, when I got that, when I got on, I was one last man on. I was laying right beside that damn shithole. Oh, and here come a guy that says, Boo, I'm coming. I can't hold it anymore. And he whipped his pants down and boom. And he sprayed it all over me. Oh, oh. For the next five <laughs> days, I had this stuff all over me. All I could do is like this. Oh. oh, I would have just vomited right there. <laughs> no, it was nothing to vomit. Yeah, <laughs> nothing to vomit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I tell you what. What else could I do? I mean, I, why, why should I knock the pee out of him for doing that? Hell, he couldn't help it. Mm -hmm. He hollered. <laughs> I just didn't roll over fast enough. But anyway, I wrote that on. Then about the fourth day out. We were strafed by our own planes. And we were run off the track, and the car fell over on its side and slid down the embankment. Wow. Now, there was 50 men on that car when we started. When we got off of that car, they put us in another one, and the guys that were dead, we had to put them in the car that, we, that replaced that one. And... Uh, when we came in to 4B, I mean the 12A, yeah, 12A, at Lindbergh, there were seven of them dead. And some of them had been dead about four or five days. Mm. But we still had to take them with us. And uh, we carried them on into camp, and they put them in the, I don't know what the devil they did when them in that camp, but I guess they took them out and burned them. 
And that's the way you disappear. So this is Stulak 12B? That's 12B, and I came in there on August, uh, in the 12B, I come in on August uh, 6th. Okay. I've been in prisoner 60 days. Okay. And went from 100, 185 down to 106. Mm. That's what I weighed in at. I'm still, still just as tall as I was, six feet tall. But now I'm down 106. Wow. Mm. And my belly was hollering for food. And the first thing we got there, they run us into a shower and they told us, they says, now, they get 50 men at a time. And said, now, you're going to go in here, you're going to take your clothes off and hang it on that trolley. Yeah, this is, this is uh, the first time that the Red Cross was available <clears throat> since D-Day. Uh, since being captured. And this is not even his final camp. The next clip is going to start his odyssey in Stalag 4B. But this was the first place where they got deloused and cleaned up a little bit. But the odyssey's still not over. So let's talk about what he just went through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can. Are you sure you want to do that? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I just cannot, I cannot imagine... <clears throat> I mean, that sounded like he had five more days of that. So it happened pretty quickly after he got on the train. Yeah. And, it, oh, my gosh. How did the guy not lose his mind? I mean, really. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I think a lot of people may have watched the movie or read the book Black Hawk Down. Yeah. And there's that the Black Hawk helicopter pilot, I can't remember his name, who was captured. And he was held prisoner for, I don't know how long, well over a month before they were finally able to, to gain his release. They interviewed him after being captured, and they said, what was the worst part of it? And he said, the way I smelled. And they go, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, I was wounded. Yeah, I had broken bones. He goes, but I could smell how bad I smelled. And he said, I felt like an animal. I felt demoralized. He goes, I felt less than human. Well, what do you think these guys felt like, especially yeah. Leo, who just got shat on? Mm -hmm. Gosh, I haven't used that word that's ever. That's horrible. I don't think I've ever used the word shat. Oh, yeah, that's... Do, we, do we have to beep out shat? No, we're not going to do okay, that. All right, okay, all right. <laughs> so, so now we're going to talk about uh, his entry into his final destination for the rest of the war, uh, which is the uh, infamous dialogue for B. And anyway, we took off. We walked back downtown to the railroad station, got on the cars. I can still remember the day we did it. And we got on it and off we went. And about two days later, we come into a little siding way out in the country someplace and off we got. And we were all intact, nobody had died. But we'd had those, that whole bottle of water each and we'd had a food package just given to us. So we had that to eat. Anyway, we walked into camp, and those limeys were in charge there. Hey, Leo, so what camp was your permanent res 4B. So now you're in Stalag 4B. 4B, okay. which is in Muleburg. In other words, it's very close to the point where the Russians and Americans met okay. when the war was over. So away we went. We got there, we got out, and they lined us up. And here come this old limey sergeant major. He had a big mustache on, about that long, handbars. And he wobbled out there. He says, now, nah, I want you boys to act like soldiers. None of this pity-weeny stuff. 
He says, I know y'all are U.S. troops, but U.S. to us means useless. <laughs> useless. Y'all ain't worth a damn for nothing. First, we got to rake it down how sorry we were. He said, now I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to warn you, but only one time. If you don't understand English, raise your hand. All right, then get up here close to me so you hear. All 50 of them, we crowded around, real close to them. He says, you see that rack there, that pulley rack? That's where you hang your clothes. When you get your clothes on, you go into the next room, you go into the showers. Now, if you don't follow my orders to the strictest, what you might find coming out of that shower head is chlorine gas. And then we'll, we'll ship you, take you out and bury you. Here you got that. Now, what you do is you go in there, and when the water comes out, what you do is you got one bar of soap, and the bar of soap was not even half that size, for two men, and it wasn't soap. Shit, it wasn't no more work of leather than flying a moon. <laughs> but that's what you lather yourself down with and wash yourself off. Now, when the Russian turns on the water, he'll start counting in Russian. <laughs> you better count with him in your sorry American language. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six. Because he's going to leave the water on for 10 seconds. And then he's going to stop and the water goes off. That first 10 seconds, you have to get yourself wet and start getting the soap worked up. Then what you do, he will count to 30 while you're getting soaked in real good. Then he'll turn it on again and count to 10. And then he's gonna turn the water off. And then you're finished. You got any soap left on you? Cold blimey, you just itch like hell. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we have a lot of information on this because we're fortunate that here in my, I'm in an homage to rush my nicotine, nicotine, nicotine stained fingers. I don't smoke, so I can't use that. But right here, this, this is a go. document that was written by, um, by Leo about his time in Stalag uh, 4B. And here are some of the things on the cover page that might be of interest. Uh, date of capture, June 6th of 1944. Date of release was April 23rd of 45. He spent 321 days as a POW. His uh, POW number was number 81-461. And if you open it to the pages where he describes uh, uh, 4B, it, this camp had been around for a long time. It was one of the older POW camps, and the British were in charge because some of these British and Indian troops and others had been at this camp for five years at this point. Some of these individuals were prisoners of war from Dunkirk. My goodness, 1940. In 1940, when the British were run off the continent and some of the men were left behind— and so the other thing that uh, Leo writes in here is that the British were more disciplined. They were more into personal hygiene, mm. which turned out to be a life or death thing uh, in these camps. If you start getting lice and infections, you could die. And so his description of the British and their disdain for Americans and the way they treated us when we got in there is 100% accurate. Mm. It's absolutely correct. It's not any sort of, uh, you know, Anglophobia or anything like that. 
Um, it's something that has widely reported. The United States POWs didn't quite do as well in these camps as the British for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's that Western culture. Don't fence me in, right? I don't know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, so really, we're going to play uh, the next couple of clips that's just going to speak a bit more to the chlorine gas that he mentioned. Mm, we're going to wow. hear more about that. And um, uh, just a little bit more about him settling into his new digs. We were black, covered with cold smoke. We hadn't had a bath or water to wash ourselves at all. The only thing white on us was right around where our, lip, our tongue could clean our mouth. And that's what we ate with. Okay, so that's the only two white people. White things we have our eyes. And when you close your eyes, have your eyes open, it doesn't get, the lids don't get black. So they were. When you close your eyes, they were white. Now we went into that thing, but what scared us was if you don't do it right, the chlorine gas will come on, <laughs> and that's going to be the end of you. Have your yanks got it straight now? Because if you don't, that's, say your prayers when you go in there. Well, even though that wasn't such a happy thought. <clears throat> Well, some of the linemen said, whether they thought, what the hell's wrong with that damn Sergeant Major? He's been in too long. Well, we found out later on, he was captured in the outbreak before Dunkirk. Wow. Boy. Gosh. Oh, man. <laughs> anyway, we went on in. We got scalded to death. <laughs> we didn't put much soap on, but we did get our faces clean. That was the thing about it. We come out, we look like pink little babies. <laughs> we have been scalded clean. And he took us in. Now, this is your bed. Now, you, you, and you, this is your bed. It's six feet, six inches long, and as wide as this table. It's got a slat here, a slat here, a slat here. It has six slats in it. Then it has a palliass on top of it. You know what a palliass is? That's a gunny sack filled bag of straw. Mm. And it was usually about this thick. Okay, but after you slept on it about a week, it's down about this thick. I said, that's where y'all gonna sleep. He said, all three in one bed, all three in one bed. You'll find it's gonna be to your liking very much later on. <laughs> we didn't know what they meant. <laughs> but anything, we we did. Because one night, you would sleep in the middle, and you would sleep down, and we'd put your, our feet under your armpits. And the next night, you would be in the next night. I would, we'd trade off. We'd take our clothes off and lay it on top of our bed to keep us warm, because we only had one blanket for every three men. And it was the damn thing. When you go to bed, you got three off you to get in that bed. We had about 600 people sleep in the barracks. And the barracks was three tiers of bed, three to a bed. So that's 18 to a rack. And that, that room, that warehouse, would hold 500 people, and that was it. And we would get in that bed and stay warm. But to keep from getting 
respiratory diseases, they take out the windows and the wind blows straight through. Now, not bad in the summertime, but in the wintertime when that Alps has a blizzard coming out of there, it snow piles up in the building, mm. but that's all right. And we never had very few respiratory diseases. We get rid of them because we had plenty of fresh air. Wow. It worked. I mean, apparently. <laughs> but you know, he talked about the windows being open the winter. We did the, uh, the, the series where we had uh, Mar- Marilyn Walton on, and she spoke of the record cold winter that occurred in 1944. When he was in there, remember that long march that they they moved to Muleberg, right, right from from where they were up in Silesia, and um, and that that that's what they were enduring. One of the things that's not in here in a clip, but is in his in his diary, is just how cold he was all the time. He would go three or four months without ever being able to feel his feet, and to this day, uh, he suffers from a hypersensitivity to being cold. Uh, maybe that's why Port Lavaca, Texas is such a good place for him at this that's point. That's true. That's you know? true. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he's in his barracks now. And so did they have blankets? One per, one for every three men. My goodness. So yeah. yeah. And, one for every three men. And three guys to a bed six foot six inches long and how wide they say it was probably, you know, three feet wide. Yeah. They cram them in. All these guys probably were down to about a hundred pounds at this point. Oh, that's true. So they didn't, they didn't weigh a whole heck of a lot. And they didn't have much fat on their bodies to keep themselves warm either at no. night. And that's why they take turns being in the middle. So Gosh, it could be the warmest. And they would do that. It was, it was unseasonably cold in these barracks from October all the way until right before they got liberated in April. So most of the time that he was there, it would have been a frozen hell. Now, he has a bit of a salvation. He has training as a medic, and it turns out, and not as a medic, but also just someone who speaks a certain foreign language that's important. And that language, as we said earlier, is is Danish, and he spoke it fluently. And uh, a, kind of a, a weird confluence of events would occur uh, while he was in the training camp, and this occurred in late 1944. Uh, so Denmark was has capitulated to Nazi Germany very early in the war. They knew they had no chance of defeating the mighty Wehrmacht, and so they surrendered and were relatively compliant for the first year or so. But then the Danish started to resist Nazi rule, and the Gestapo went into Denmark and instructed them to uh, identify, arrest, and execute these Danish resistance movement members. The politicians said, oh, okay, yeah, we'll do that, anything it takes to get along. But the police force didn't. The police force were not ready, willing, or able. No, they were able. They just weren't ready or willing to do it. So what happened was out of a force of about 10,000 men, about 2,000 were arrested and put into an SS concentration camp called Buchenwald, which I think a lot of our listeners would have heard of before. Mm-hmm. It was a death camp. About 20% of them would die there. And the rest uh, were sent to, um, this would have been on do, 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 September of 44, they were sent to um, uh, Stalag 4B, the same camp that Leo's in. 
So they're Danish. He's Danish. They Germans asked if there was a medic to take care because these guys came out of Buchenwald. They weren't in very good shape. Uh, if there was a medic that spoke uh, Danish that could help these guys, well, guess what? He was one of those individuals. Wow. Well, wait, I thought he was told he doesn't do good with language. I know. That's so crazy, right? <laughs> We're going to make you an artillery officer because you, you're not good at languages. And he speaks fluent freaking Dane. Uh, so now what you're going to hear in uh, these this the next clip is um, is what he had to do to try to take care of these individuals who had suffered horribly under the Gestapo. What could he do for them? Give them medicine. Well, the only medicine we had in camp was Epsom salts and aspirins. And that was all. There was nothing else. The way we got them well was to feed them. <coughs> Oatmeal, cooked with condensed, sweetened condensed milk and prunes and raisins. That's the way we could get them back to life. And that's all we had. And that's what we did. Well, that's what I had to tell the Daves. This is all you get, aspirins and that stuff. And if you die, you'd have to die here. And what I asked them to do is tell me, what is your name? Where, what part of Denmark are you from? Where were you picked up at? What's your mother's name, father's name, brothers or sister? And what, when was you picked up? When did you get here? And I'll write that down. Now, I will contact your parents when the war is over. Because that's my native language. So I'll contact them and tell them <clears throat> that you died on whatever day you died. Well, how do you know I'm going to die? I says, I don't. But I don't need to know that you won't die. You mean I ain't got much of a chance? I says, yeah, you got... You got a chance, and it's better than not much, but you got to take care of yourself. So you're going to eat, okay? Learn to eat. And the way we stayed alive and well, the uh, medics, ward boys, that's what I was. I was a ward boy. We had 67 beds, and as a limey sergeant and an American paratrooper, we took care of 67 beds. Is that a load? And you go down to the hospital and ask, how many do you have in the hospital today? Well, we have 35. I said, how many nurses do you have on duty? Well, we're short-handed. I said, we only have 20. <laughs> shit, you don't know what short-hand shit is. <laughs> you have to wipe the butts and you have to feed them. And then whenever they die, you got to take them back to the latrine, and then I have to prepare them for a burial. Was that something you had to do frequently? Yeah. Yeah. About one every day, sometimes two or three. Oh my gosh. What what sort of um, ailments cause most of the deaths? Was it like dysentery or? Uh, yeah, diarrhea. Yeah. And uh, pneumonia. Pneumonia was very bad. You got pneumonia, there was nothing we could do for you. Just make you comfortable. Let you die. When I started to work as a word boy. As a medic, I weighed 115 pounds, and I maintained that weight only because we ward boys could eat the food of any prisoner who had died during the night. Mm. Our best treatment for starvation was food, such as oatmeal cooked with butter, sugar, prunes. This extra ration was eaten by the hospital workers as a reward for our long hours, 16 hours a day. 
I was responsible for the burial preparation of 100 Ameri 135 American soldiers who died in my war. I had recorded the illness, the cause of death, the date of capture, and details of the same, and also the name and address of the prisoner's family. These records I kept so I could write each soldier's next of kin the hour and date their soldier boy died. When the Russians took over our camp, 4B, they burned the German officers to the ground. Yeah. So the, there the records went. Oh, gosh. Uh, missing in action. They're still missing in action. I know there's some of them. I, I know them. They're dead. But they said, we haven't got the proof of it. They said, you got my proof. They said, hell, you weren't an officer. You don't count. Man, what a waste. I mean, you know... This all all of this stuff that that Leo did to to take care of these guys and uh, I mean, my goodness to have 135 of them that that passed away uh, in his barracks or his his ward he goes through all this work to document them so that he can in case they do die contact the family and then it's all for nothing yeah the Russians burned it down when they were liberated and, and now they're considered missing in action and you know and the families don't know what happened but yeah forever and you know the other thing that's interesting is you know when he, when he talked so basically what we just heard him say was he got brought into the ward he worked 16 hour days he took care of the Danes who got sick he wiped their butts he fed them he he basically that was really thing the only thing he could do is to feed them but at the end of his six months doing this or so, there was still 135 of them and some Americans he was taking care of that died. And I just can't imagine putting all that work into taking care of these men. And when they pass away, he had to help bury them. It was... Uh, you know, I mean, I would say this, you know, as as Marilyn Walton said, um, you know, in her, I don't know if we covered her story about finding Sconiers, which was the the soldier that died in Stalag Three, and it was the only soldier that died in Stalag Three that would had not been reinterred back to the U.S. after the war. Um, there was a big effort, I think, underway by a lot of of you know volunteers and 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 the nations too to recover their dead that were over there. So I would imagine. These, I, I would hope that their graves were marked, and maybe that they were brought back. But if they weren't labeled, yeah, they they would be, you know, just an unmarked grave. You know, of course, in today this day and age, they could do DNA testing and stuff. But uh, to be curious to find out. You know, Stalag Four B was a really big, was one of the biggest, mm -hmm. if not the biggest, POW camp in Germany. Um, if that, how thoroughly that cemetery was was. Uh, basically, uh, uh, the bodies were pulled out and, and taken back home to the U.S. afterwards. Yeah, it, it's hard to say. Uh, every time I'm skeptical of that sort of thing happening, I read a story about the lengths that the U.S. military goes through to recover their dead and bring them home. So right. it's very possible that may have happened with some of these men. The other thing that the audience may or may not have uh, caught is he attributes, and this is part of his diary as well, he attributes to being able to stay alive to the, the perk the perk, quote unquote, that he was able to have by working this ward is when someone died, the wards, the medics got their food. Mm -hmm. And so as these individuals died at the clip of two or three a day, they had additional food to keep them alive that other prisoners didn't have because they didn't have the skill that he had as a medic. Gosh. Yeah, so mm. it's kind of a, yeah, but okay. Um, the next clip that we're going to talk about is going to be liberation. 
this this part of hell is going to be over and a whole new one is unleashed. April the 23rd, 1945. It wasn't looking too good for Hitler. In fact, he was just about dead, but didn't know it. May the 8th, they finally capitulated. But on the 25th, the Russians rode up to the side of our camp. A Cossack unit. Mm. About 150, 200 horsemen. Well armed. And they stopped there and then they rode around to the gate. And of course, by then, the Germans had already left. They had left that night, but we didn't know it. Mm. They had just snuck off. They knew the Russians were going to be cloaked. And they knew that their life was very much in danger. They were going to get shot immediately. They wouldn't be long. Because there was Russian prisoners in our camp, and they were said, shoot that son of a bitch. Mm -hmm. And they would. Mm -hmm. Okay? <coughs> so what happened was the British and American sergeants decided that they would let the Germans take off at 12 midnight mm -hmm. before the Russians got there. And they told them, get the hell out of here because your, your life ain't going to be worth a plug nickel. And they took off. So at 7 o'clock in the morning, we got up and we went outside to be stand to be counted. Because the first thing they did in the morning was see how many escaped during the night. And that way they would count, count them all. And we knew we had to be counted. So we were standing there waiting to be counted and here rolled up the Cossacks beside the fence. Damn boy, we hoo, hey, damn glad to see you. About damn time you got here. <laughs> they rode around to the front. And they came in, they said, Where I am now the camp commander. <laughs> Everybody get ready to start walking home. <laughs> okay, so we went back to our parents. Then another Russian drove up in a car. And he said, I'm camp commander now. <laughs> And he said, no, you're not. Get, stay back, get back in your barracks and stay put. The first day, from sunup to sundown, we had seven cap commanders. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't get any food to eat. So they finally, that evening, they said, well, hell, go get some. Where? They said, hell, go on in town. Get what you want. If they won't give it to them, Give it to you, shoot them. Take it anyway. Yeah. Oh, no, we couldn't do that. Well, you son of a bitch, you. <laughs> what was your impression of your liberators, of the, of the Russians? Well, they were a bunch of uncouth, uncultured heathens. There goes our Russian audience. <laughs> and they looked at two. They looked next to a wild man. They were filthy dirty. They were men and women in the service. Didn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. And they might be an infantry, infantry woman or an infantry man or a doctor or a nurse or might even be a, a commander, women commander. Mm -hmm. yeah, they were a motley looking bunch, I can tell you about And smell, God almighty. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> Uh, I, I hate to, to, to say this to our audience, and this is going to sound like, you know, pro-American rah-rah stuff, but from the people that we've interviewed or read about at Stalag 4B when the Russians 
liberated them. That's a pretty common narrative. Sure. I mean, well, I mean, think about it. I mean, those guys, they've been coming, they've come all the way across Eastern Europe yeah. to where to be where they're at. And it's getting worse and worse as they go because they, they're getting into Germany where it's been bombed to oblivion and yeah. there's no food or anything left. And hopefully their supply lines are keeping them fed. They may not be either. Yeah. You know? and, and unfortunately, what happened here, which didn't happen in other camps that the Allied um, uh, liberated, is the Russians were like, we don't have any food for you. Just go into town and take what you need. Mm-hmm. And um, what you're going to hear in these next two clips is extremely disturbing. So if you have, you know, young ears in the car or whatnot, you may want to either skip this part or listen to it later. And unfortunately, history has a habit of rhyming. Some of these things that you're hearing now are happening right now in a place called Ukraine. Is that thing still counting? Yes, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I want to tell you something. This is gruesome, both to you all up there, but it's a gospel truth. While we was at Risa, that's right before we were released by the Russians, they let us out of the barracks we were in. We could walk around town, but not leave the perimeter of the town. It wasn't a town that was about one square mile. So we walked down to the central part of town to park, <clears throat> and we met some German women there and a couple of little girls. And while we was kind of listening to them, I thought the one sounded like she wasn't speaking German. So I went up and I looked her at her. I said, Kadush talit the Danska spoke. And then she answered me in plain Danish, Yadikaya Gottnok, yes, that I can very well. Mm-hmm. I says, meet now in And I said, well, how did you happen to get into here? Says, well, I work for Lufwana. That's that German Air Force, uh, German civilian uh, airlines. Mm-hmm. And I was stationed in Iceland. Iceland is a Danish mm-hmm. uh, protected or whatever it was. So when the war started, I couldn't get out of there. And then the Germans came in there, and my husband that I married, he was a German officer. He came in there, and we got married then. And then I had children with him. And this right here is my daughter. She was eight years old. And she said, I want you to help me out and help out my friend there. She has a 12-year-old daughter. And we want you to get three of your other fellas and come where we are staying and help protect us from the Russians raping us. Mm-hmm. And I said, are they pretty bad? I said, ja, die knippers very often three, four times, three or four times a night. Gosh. And I said, well, they don't mess with the children. Yeah, they're girty. That little pier there, who had that? Six times in one night, six Russians. Mm. Wow. See, so th- this is the damn thing. We said, now, well, how can we help? Well, if you're there with them and you're laying on them, they won't mess with you. They'll come in and stick a flashlight in your face and they'll see you're an American. They'll, they'll leave you alone. Are you sure? Yeah. 
So before we play the next clip, just put something to context. He decides, he decides to take her up on her offer. He wants to make sure that she's not getting raped by the Russians. This woman wants American help. She knows that the Americans are there. The Russians won't rape her and their children, which is what they've been doing three and six times a night since the Russians were quote unquote liberated from this prisoner of war camp. So he goes back to the, uh, Stalag 4B, gets a couple of his friends with the idea of, let's just stay with these women to keep the Russians off them on their way to do that you're about to hear what they witness next we started down there about three o'clock in the afternoon nice sunshiny day now this is about uh, may first part of may the war was, war was over and as we was walking down there <clears throat> out of the house came a girl with a pram you know that's little child's baby buggy and had a child in there and she got out and she went down the street. Now, the, the streets there, they're just as good as our streets, but they have a big stone fence between the street and the house yard, front of the yard. And she come out. She was coming down the street, just going and everything. And one of the guys said, hot dog, that'd be a nice one. And about that time, here come two Russians out of the house with Tommy guns. Mm. And they were drunker than heck. They come out and they saw that girl and they hollered at her and she started running and they started firing at her over her head with the tongue gun. Well, she stopped out of fear, right? And uh, then the one put his uh, Tommy gun down and Started taking off her clothes, pulling up her pants, I down her pants and up her skirt, and got with it right there at three o'clock in the afternoon on the side street, mm. huh? Right in front of God and the devil and everybody else, and us too. Yes. Well, now we don't want to get killed; we want to get home, right? We ain't gonna interfere. Well, before anything else could happen, the baby started crying. So the guy that was with the, one guy was screwing the woman and the other guy was just standing there kind of nervous. And finally, when the baby was crying, he went over to the damn baby bug, stuck his gun down, pulled the trigger, went off about five rounds, and the baby quit crying. It's dead. Yeah, I'm speechless. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, I'm sure this is stuff that went on every day, every minute of every day at this time in the war. You and, know? And, and worse. And you know, it was, uh, I mean, it, it, like you said, it was disturbing. It was something that I don't think people would believe unless they were there to see it. Um, but when the Russians and the Americans, when the POWs were unleashed in the towns, the, I hate to say it, but the Russians in particular, uh, felt, uh, license based on the way they were treated and what had happened, uh, in Russia, to take it out on the German civilian population, and they did in ways that are often indescribable, like you just heard there. So um, I don't really think there's too much more to unpack there uh, because it's pretty self-explanatory. It really shocked him and his friends. They so, never went to see that girl. I was just going to ask you, what did, they, did they go back? They, and never, they were so shook up by it. They never went to stay with them. He said he went in the war a virgin, and he left the war a virgin. He never took advantage of the deal that um, that they proposed to them, which was not just to stay there with them, but that 
that they were going to allow these Americans to, to, to sleep with them because yes, because they felt like that was the lesser of two evils. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. I left that clip out because it's kind of long and meandering, but that's, that's, that was the deal. And so after the men saw this, they, they couldn't do that. Uh, and they, they, they would end up uh, going back to the barracks. I, it's a confusing time. I don't know what to do with these some of these clips. But I mean, I guess my thought would be, well, you don't have to go through with the deed. You can at least go back there and, and act like you're, you know, uh, with the girl just to protect them. I know, I know. It's 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 warm, and, and and I don't know how I would, I guess, react in that situation. You don't know how your mind reacts. And like he said, he goes, "I just wanted to get home." Yeah, and and they were just a day away from doing that. This concludes episode four of the Leo Westerholm series. Please be sure to join us for episode five where Leo makes his way home and we fast forward to 2022 and a very moving moment that Tony and I experienced at the very spot where Leo was captured.